This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes was an old-time radio show which aired in the U.S. from October 2nd of 1939 to July 7th of 1947. Originally, the show starred Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. Now, together, they starred in 220 episodes, which aired weekly on Mondays from 8.30 to 9 p.m. Bromo Quinine sponsored some of the earlier programs on the NBC Blue Network, and for a period, Parker Penn was the sponsor. With Rathbone and Bruce, the show exhibited an interesting introduction. The sponsor's spokesman would show up weekly at Dr. Watson's house, then retired and living in California, and share a story about Sherlock Holmes and his adventures over a glass of Petri wine. This offered them the chance to bring in sometimes other characters to contribute to the shows, and also it gave Watson a chance to summarize or add additional tidbits at the end. Tonight we hear the episode, Dr. Watson Meets Sherlock Holmes. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, the original and immortal stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, dramatized anew with Sir Ralph Richardson as Dr. Watson and Sir John Gielgud in the role of Sherlock Holmes. My name is Watson, Dr. John H. Watson. It may be familiar to you through my association over many years with one of the most remarkable men I believe the world has ever known, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. I want to tell you about one of our earliest adventures, the first time that we went out into the streets of London in active partnership. We were still youngish men, it was far back in the early 1880s. We had shared those famous rooms, number 221B Baker Street, for only a few months. Watson, my dear fellow, you're just in time. In time for what, Holmes? Well, you've so often been good enough to express a genial interest in my singular profession. Now you'll be able to see me actually at work. Oh, well, I'm delighted, Holmes. It should be fascinating. Ah, but I must sit down by the fire. 
deuce chilly out. Oh, do, do, my dear fellow. Oh, by the way, Watson, why Turkish? Turkish? How do you mean? The bath. The bath you've just come from, my dear fellow. Why the relaxing and expensive Turkish rather than the invigorating homemade article across the passage here? Well, because I felt lazy and... But I haven't said a word about it. How the deuce did you know I'd had a Turkish bath? Your boots, Watson. Boots? The thing's quite elementary, surely. Oh, no doubt, but you'll forgive me if I fail to see the least connection. You always do your boots up in the same way, Watson. However, on this occasion, I see them fastened with an elaborate double bow. Uh-huh. And so, of course, you've had them off and someone else has tied them for you. Who, for example? The answer can only be your bootmaker or the boy at the Turkish baths. As your boots were only made and delivered here late last week, it's hardly likely to have been the bootmaker, so what remains but the bath? Absurdly simple, isn't it? Upon <laughs> my soul, Holmes, you really are the strangest fellow. Ah, wait till you meet Milverton. He's stranger still. Milverton? Who's Milverton? Charles Augustus Milverton of Hampstead. In all probability, the most evil man in London. Indeed? He sounds fascinating. I invited him for 6.30, so he's almost due. Oh, I shiver at the thought of him. But what's he do for a living, this strange caller of ours? Blackmail, Watson. Huh? Yes, he looks like Mr. Pickwick. But heaven help the man, or worse still, the woman who's indiscreet enough to get into his power. And what have you to do with him? Well, I've had the honor recently to be consulted by a particularly illustrious lady. Who is she? Do I know her? Well, I expect you know her name. Lady Eva Brackwell, the most beautiful debutante of last season. But of course, isn't, isn't she to be married in a fortnight to the Earl of Dover Court? Yes. It's all arranged. Unluckily for her, Milverton has managed to get hold of some imprudent letters, Watson, which she wrote some time ago to a penniless young fellow in the country. Only imprudent, mind you, but they'd be quite sufficient to break off the match. And you're commissioned to meet him? Yes, and make what terms I can. I think he's here, Watson. Will you let him in? Mr. Holmes' rooms. Will you come in, please? This is Mr. Holmes... I take it you are... Charles Augustus Milverton. How are you, Mr. Holmes? No, I prefer not to shake hands with you, Mr. Milverton. Huh? This is only a matter of business between us. I see. And we can talk of it before this gentleman. It's a rather a delicate affair. Dr. Watson is my friend and partner, sir. He knows our business. Really? Well, we need hardly waste much time on it. My position is quite definite. You are acting for the Lady Eva, I understand. I have that honor. What are your terms, Mr. Milverton? Seven thousand pounds, Mr. Holmes. And the alternative? Oh, my dear sir, it is painful to discuss it. But if the money is not paid by the 14th, there will certainly be no marriage on the 18th. And supposing I advise my client to tell her future husband all about these letters you hold? <laughs> you evidently do not know the Earl, Mr. Holmes, nor me. I am practice at this game, sir. Look at this pocket. I have eight or ten similar cases all maturing in it. Here's how I make my humble breath. You scoundrel. As you like, sir. But there are details here that would surprise you for all your so-called knowledge of affairs. You may remember the sudden end of the engagement between the Honorable Miss Miles and Colonel Dorking. And only because the absurd sum of £1,200 could not be found in time. 7000 is ridiculous, Milverton. Out of the question. Is it? I think not. There was also the case of... Oh, well, no more names, perhaps. Well, sir? Watson, get behind him. Don't let him get out now. Now, sir, that notebook, if you please. You fool, Holmes. Stand back. Do you think I'd go about a business like mine unarmed? Stand back, I say. 
You too, Dr. Watson, or whatever your name is. Put up your hand. Holmes, I'll... Keep still, Watson. Ah, I expected something much more original, Mr. Holmes. I really did, from you. Do you think I'm just a fool as to carry the letters about with me? You only make me more determined than ever. One more word and I'll make it 8,000. And the 13th instead of the 14th. Good night, Mr. Holmes. It was one of my earliest glimpses of the kind of thing confronting us in what Holmes had been good enough to call our partnership. What he would do next, I had no idea. I was hardly prepared a few nights later, and on a particularly stormy evening, for the appearance in our chambers of a tall, rakish-looking young workman with a goatee beard. Governor, how are you? How? How am I? Now, look here, my good man. What do you think you're doing walking in here? These are private apartments. I happen to live here, Watson. <coughs> Good heavens. Holmes. Yes, I think I forgot to warn you about my little penchant for disguises, Watson. Just one among my many other accomplishments. Phew, <laughs> <laughs> what an appalling night outside. It's coming down in sheets. Well, what on earth have you been doing? Getting myself engaged to be married. To... To be married? My, my dear fellow, I, I congratulate you. Yes, to the housemaid at Charles Augustus Milberton's. What? I had to, Watson. I wanted information. Oh, sure, that was going too far. Not at all. In my present alias, I'm a rising young plumber named Estcott. I've walked and talked with that girl every evening for nearly a week. Such charming little talks they were, too. <laughs> and now I know Milberton's house in Hampstead like the palm of my hand yes. from the basement to the attics. Yes, yes, but Holmes, the, the, the poor girl, Holmes. Well, it really can't be helped, Watson. She has to become a sacrifice on the altar of my art. Oh, fortunately, I find I have a hated rival in the shape of the local grocery assistant. He's sure to cut me out at the moment my back's turned. <laughs> Look out of the window, Watson. Ah, oh, what a splendid night. Well, you were only complaining about it a moment ago. As an honest citizen, as a burglar, I approve of it. As a... as a burglar? Yes, I propose to burgle Milberton's house before the night is over, Watson. It's the only way. I just want a few minutes to change my clothes and get rid of this ticklish beard, and then I shall be leaving you for the evening to your peaceful solitude. No, no, Holmes, I'm coming with you. My dear Watson. You said that we were partners, and that I should do something to shake off my indolence. Well, well... We've been sharing these same rooms for some months now. It'd be amusing if we should finish up sharing the same cell. <laughs> do you really mean it, Watson? To the death. Well, you're a most delightful fellow. Uh, oh, do you think you could contrive to make us up a couple of masks? Masks? Mm. Masks? In five minutes, from black silk. I have an old umbrella somewhere. Excellent. Then that'll be your contribution. For my part, I shall be delighted to teach you how to use a jemmy huh? and a glass cutter. And this set of adaptable keys. Oh, oh, oh. Some wonderful specimens here. In two hours' time, Watson, we shall be in Milverton's study, where he keeps his safe. It adjoins his bedroom, unfortunately, but uh, I think he's pretty sure to be sound asleep. My little fiancé tells me he always sleeps like a log. Is it a bargain, Watson? It's a bargain, Holmes. <laughs> You see, what did I tell you?
purpose. I, I don't like it, Holmes. It was too little trouble. What do you mean, because the door of the study wasn't even locked? Oh, some oversight. Look, look. There's a light under the bedroom door. Yes. He often falls asleep with the bedroom lamp still burning. I learned that from my fiancé, too. Now then, Watson, to work. Well, what do you want me to do? Stand over by the door there and give me a warning if we hear anyone coming. Right. If they come right in, we'll still have time to hide behind the window curtains. Right. I'll begin on the safe. Right, right. Now then. Skeleton keys. Ah, so. Oh, this fellow's a fool, you know. He ought to have had a much more modern safe than this one. Now then, let's see. If I could only... Now, it... Holmes, Holmes. What is it, Watson? Confounded, I've almost got it open. Someone coming along the corridor. Two people. Ah, oh, deuce take it. What a moment to choose. It's too bad. Quick, then, behind the curtain. You can't have been in bed after all. Must have been waiting in the hall for someone. Watson, are you all right? Yes, I think so. Rather a tight fit. Well, there's a gap here I can just see through. Someone's coming upstairs carrying an oil lamp. Ah, it's Milverton, all right. There's a woman with him. Veiled. Shh, they're coming in. Well, miss, you decided to come then, half an hour late. I couldn't manage any earlier. My mistress kept me. Well, if she's a hard mistress, you have your chance to get even with her. You tell me in your note that you've managed to get hold of some letters which compromise the Countess d'Albert. Yes, I have. You want to sell them and I want to buy them. So far, so good. I can use them in my business. Now, as to price... The price, Mr. Milverton, for everything, is your life. What do you mean, girl? Look at me. She's lifting her veil, Holmes. That's no lady's maid. Great heavens! Is it you? Yes, it's I, Charles Milverton. And don't you dare to speak my name. You've fouled it enough. You've ruined me the way you've ruined so many others. You should have found the money in time. And because I couldn't. Because I begged you for two days' grace. You sent those letters you had to my husband. And he died. And you know how he died. The finest man in the world. And the letters were false. You changed the dates on them. They were written before I met him. Keep back from me. Oh, put that pistol down. No, not till I've used it. You'll break no more hearts, Charles Milverton, as you've broken mine. You hound. Oh. You filthy hound. Great heavens, Holmes! Quiet, man, he's done for. And she's got away, thank heaven. Who was that woman, Holmes? Surely you know that face, Watson. Not the Duchess. Oh, never, never mention names, Watson. Now's our chance if we're quick. What are you doing, man? Safe, Watson, the papers in the safe. To save our own client and who knows how many more besides. Quick, put that bundle in your pocket, Watson. Yes, yes. And give the rest to me. Hurry! Yes. Someone must have heard the shots. Listen. There are people coming. Out of the window, quickly, Watson. <laughs> So we escaped, down a convenient drain pipe, over two garden walls, and luckily found an empty hansom at the bottom of the road, and reached Baker Street at last, and safety. <laughs> Our adventure was over, or almost over. As I lay tossing sleeplessly in bed that night, I found myself more than ever intrigued by the personality of my strange companion. I recollected our first meeting only a few months before. 
I'd just come back from medical service abroad and was moping miserably about this old London of ours of handsome cabs and fog and gaslight, doing simply nothing at all. And then, standing at a Piccadilly bar one day... Hello there, Watson. Remember me? Uh, what? Why, yes, Stamford, young Stamford. Used to be a dresser under you and you were a medical student at Bart's, remember? Of course I remember. Confounded, it's a pleasure to see a friendly face, Stamford. London's the very deuce for a lonely man. Oh, what on earth have you been doing with yourself, Watson? You're as thin as a lath and brown as a nut. Oh, oh. Afghanistan, you know. Uh-huh. The campaign out there, army surgeon. I say, have a drink, will you? Thanks, I don't mind. Uh, start, I think. I got wounded pretty badly. At my wand, confounded nuisance, subclavian artery. Uh, two glasses of stout, please. Invalided out then, eh? And uh, what are you doing with yourself now? Nothing, nothing. Trying to solve the problem of finding comfortable rooms on an army pension, 11 and 6 a day. <laughs> well, here's your health, Stamford. Yours, Watson. Here's to old times. Strange you should say that, you know. Say what? About looking for rooms. You're the second man today who said that to me. And who was the first? Oh, some fellow was working in the chemical lab up at the hospital... A fellow called Holmes. He wouldn't like to go halves, I suppose. Exactly what he was saying. Looking for someone to share with him, you know. I'm the very man, then. What's his other name? Sherringford, is it? No, 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 no. Sherlock. Knew it was something queer. Sherlock Holmes. What's he do? Oh, deuced if I know. He's got a whole store of -of out-of-the-way knowledge that would astonish the professors. And he's a first-class chemist. Says he's going in for something quite special. I say, Watson. Huh? Let's go along to the lab and meet him. He's bound to be there. Let's have lunch somewhere and, and then go on, shall we? Excellent. I only hope it comes to something. I must confess, he sounds quite interesting. Uh, through this way. He's bound to be there. Uh, mind you, Watson, you mustn't blame me if you don't get on with the fellow. He's pretty queer in his ideas. How do you mean? Well, I actually came on him the other day, beating the subject in the dissecting room with a stick. What on earth for? Said he wanted to find out how far bruises could be produced after death. Uh, through here now. Mm. Gruesome tests, eh? Still. Ah, there he is. The tall fellow behind all the test tubes and retorts. I told you he'd be working. I say, Holmes... Stanford, Eureka, Stanford! I've just found this. Oh, found what, Holmes? A reagent which is precipitated by hemoglobin and by nothing else in all the world. Indeed. Well, I want you to meet Dr. Watson, Holmes. Watson, this is Mr. Sherlock Holmes. How are you, Doctor? From Afghanistan, I perceive. What? How on earth did you know that? <laughs> Never mind. The question now is about hemoglobin... No doubt you see the significance of this discovery of mine. Well, it's probably interesting enough chemically, but from the practical point of view, My I... My dear fellow, it's the most practical medico-legal discovery for years. Don't you see that it gives us an infallible test for bloodstains? Indeed? Yes. Criminal cases are always hinging on this kind of thing. A man suspected of a crime long after it's committed, let's say, and his linen turns out to have brownish stains on it. Yes, but are they blood or mud or rust stains or fruit stains or what? Now we have the Sherlock Holmes test, Dr. Watson, so there can be no more difficulty. Ah, they say you are to be congratulated, Mr. Holmes. Of course I am. There was the case of von Bischoff at Frankfurt last year, and and Mason of Bedford and Sampson of New Orleans. I could name a score of cases where the thing would have been decisive. By Jove, you're a regular walking calendar of crime, Holmes. Well, why not, eh? What could be more fascinating? 
Have you a taste for such matters by any chance, Doctor? Oh, well, I confess it's been a little beyond my range. Oh, you'll get it, sir. You will, I assure you. The thing grips you like a drug. Uh, Holmes, I wanted you two to meet because Watson's on the lookout for someone to share diggings with him. Oh. The same as you are. Capital, Doctor. You look the very man for me. I've had my eye on a suite in Baker Street, number 221B. Uh, Mrs. Hudson is the landlady's name. Uh, you don't mind the smell of strong tobacco, I hope. I always smoke ships myself. <laughs> That's good enough, then. Oh, and I generally have a few chemicals about and carry out experiments like this one. That wouldn't annoy you? By no means. Well, then let me see. What are my other shortcomings? Oh, I get down in the dumps sometimes and don't open my mouth for days on end. And, um, oh, I have a fancy for revolver practice indoors. So long as I can rely on your aim. Infallible, I assure you. Now, what have you to confess? <laughs> oh, well, I get up at all sorts of ungodly hours and I'm very lazy. I... <laughs> I don't like too much row, but, but, oh, but I put up with the revolver shots. Good. I've got another set of vices when I'm well, but these are the principal ones for the present. Then that's all right. Thank you, Stamford. I'm very much obliged to you. Well, shall we go together, Dr. Watson, and look at the rooms tomorrow? Uh, say at noon? At noon, Holmes. It'll suit admirably. Oh, one other little thing, the violin. You don't include violin playing in your category of rows. It depends on the player, my dear Holmes. If it's badly played... Ah, that's something I shall have to leave you to judge for yourself, my dear fellow. And I shall have pleasure in testing your ear with a few of my own little compositions. Then you will be able to judge my modest capabilities. Uh, Till tomorrow, then, my dear Dr. Watson. Till tomorrow. So we took those rooms together and settled down quite amicably. As the weeks went by, my interest in my companion intensified. I studied his sharp, piercing eyes, his thin, hawk-like face, and I wondered time and again what he did for a living so as to pay his share of our humble reckoning. He was out at all sorts of strange hours, and when he was at home, curious visitors were always calling on him. And then he would ask if he might have our sitting room to himself. It was a thin, sallow, dark-eyed fellow called Lestrade, for instance, who came three or four nights in one week. Once, a fashionably dressed young girl waited on him. At another time, it was a railway porter in his velveteen uniform. The thing puzzled me, until at last one day... Ah, you wonder what I do for a living, Watson, eh? I've seen you looking quizzically once or twice at these visiting clients of mine. Clients? Yes. Yes. Oh, just pass me over the Persian slipper, will you, my dear fellow? I always keep the tobacco in it. Thank you. The fact is, I'm a professional thinker, Doctor. A thinker? Certainly. I piece things together, you see. Just as a logician could infer the possibility of an Atlantic or a Niagara from a single drop of water without having seen or heard of either of them, so I build rare edifices of deduction from the observation of a few simple facts. Oh, oh come home. That is the truth, I assure you. If you're looking round for a cigar, by the way, my dear chap, you'll find them in the coal scuttle. <laughs> yes, yes, I have a trade all my own, Watson. The only one in the whole world. I'm a consulting detective. Oh, that's London's full of detectives, Holmes. Oh, lots of government ones and plenty of private ones, but none like me. I've built up quite a special little connection, Watson. 
And when any of these other fellows are at last, they generally come to me to put them right. Not just, just by thinking about things, I suppose. Exactly. I have a turn for observation and deduction, as you must have noticed. <laughs> that first time we met, for instance, when I mentioned to your surprise that you'd just come from Afghanistan. Oh, you were told about it, no doubt. Nothing of the sort, Watson. I just knew. It's second nature to me. My train of thought ran something like this. Here's a fellow who's a doctor, but with the air of a military man, clearly an army surgeon then. Just come from the tropics, for his face is dark, but that isn't his natural color, for his wrists are fair. His arm is stiff, he's been wounded. Where in the tropics could an English army doctor have been wounded lately? And the obvious answer was in the Afghan campaign, probably the Battle of Maiwan. <laughs> it's simple enough when you explain it. I confess I was taken aback a bit at the time. <laughs> and do you mean to say that you apply these principles to the detection of crime? Of course I do. That fellow Lestrade you were asking me about the other day, for instance, he's a Scotland Yard man, one of the best. But he got himself into a fog over a forgery case recently and came to me to ask my advice on the evidence he had. I solved it for him on the spot. Upon my life, you astonish me, Holmes. I had no idea that that was what you were up to. What, what gave you the notion? Oh, natural talent, I suppose. When I was still at college, a small thing happened to come my way which enabled me to solve a curious crime. I decided that I had a taste for such matters, and so here I am now, a professional investigator. That's the kind of thing I deal with in this life of mine, Watson. That, and of course my music. Well, I never thought of you as a professional investigator of crime. Even when you talked about it so much at the hospital that time we met. Well, one really must do something to keep oneself from boredom. You may find yourself mixed up in it one of these fine days, you know. You never know, Watson, you never know. And I was, of course, you know that now, with the Milverton exploit, as I've related it as the first real adventure of them all in which I felt myself truly involved. It ended rather oddly, that burglary episode of ours. The very morning after it, after my sleepless night, there came in the little man I'd so often seen before. Lestrade, the good Lestrade of Scotland Yard. Good morning, my dear Lestrade. Good morning, Mr. Holmes. I was wondering... Oh, this is Dr. Watson, by the way. He was asking all about you the other day. How do you do, Doctor? Any friend of Mr. Holmes's is a friend of mine. Delighted to meet you, Inspector. Well, sit down, won't you, and share a pipe with us. Too much of a hurry, I'm afraid. I just wanted to ask if you had anything particular on hand, Mr. Holmes. Oh, I don't think so. Nothing much. A little matter down at the docks involving a giant rat... From Sumatra. You can leave the rats to look after themselves, Mr. Holmes. There's been murder done up at Hampstead. Wanted you to look into it for us. Queer business. Oh, really? Who's been murdered? Fellow called Milverton. Indeed. I believe I've heard the name. Holmes. Holmes. Not feeling dicky, are you, Watson? Any details, Lestrade? Well, no. We know who did it, of course. You know? Good heavens. Couple of them, Doctor. Nearly got them, they did. There was a hue and cry, you see. They got away worse luck, but they were seen. How interesting. And what are they supposed to look like? Well, first one, very tall. Other fellow, middle-sized, thick-necked man with a moustache. Moustache, They both had masks over their eyes. Oh, calmly straight. That's rather vague, isn't it? 
Upon my soul, it might even be a description of Watson and me, eh, Watson? It might indeed. <laughs> yeah, you're right, Mr. Holmes, you're perfectly right. <laughs> By Jove, it might be. <laughs> well, uh, uh, will you handle it? I'm afraid not, Lestrade, not this time. I know something of this fellow Milverton. He was a rogue and a blackmailer. There are certain crimes that the law can't punish adequately, my dear fellow. And in this instance, my sympathies are with the criminals, Lestrade. I will not handle the case. Uh, well, if you won't, you won't. I'll get the fellas all right in time, I dare say. Will you, Lestrade? Oh, I do hope you may. Pass me my violin as you go out there, a good fellow. I feel deuced lazy this morning. Had rather a strenuous night. Pleasure, Mr. Holmes. Well, good morning, Doctor. See you again, I dare say. Always in and out of Baker Street, you know. Good morning, Inspector. Morning, Mr. Holmes. Good morning. Best of luck, Lestrade. Oh, <laughs> well, another five minutes like that, Holmes. I'll take myself back to Afghanistan. Oh, no, you won't, Watson. You'll grow to love it, too. <laughs> this is only the beginning, my dear fellow. <laughs> only the beginning. <laughs> The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, based on the original stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, have been dramatized anew with original music composed by Sidney Torch. Sir Ralph Richardson played the part of Dr. Watson and Sir John Gilgood that of Sherlock Holmes. The program was produced by Harry Allen Towers. Stay tuned for Bob Hope next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Bob Hope to welcome special guests Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Well, I won. Me too. So do I. Yes, it's the new Swan Show with our great singing star, Doris Day. Well, I won. A new comedy team sensation, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Irene Ryan, the four hits of the miss, and the new left round band. We use one exclusively, how about you? Yes, how about you? Who, me? My name is Robert. You can break me in two hopes. Swan's Eye View of the News. Washington, D.C. Radio's giveaway programs were under fire this week as the Federal Communications Commission hear arguments against banning them from the air. Yeah, they'll give away anything nowadays. The other night, Fervor McGee had to buy back Molly from a guy in Pittsburgh. I can't understand why the government is cracking down on giveaways, though. After all, President Truman's been on the road three months now trying to give away... 
political speeches have been crowding the radio so much it's very confusing. At 10 o'clock yesterday, Portia was facing life wearing Truman's glasses and Dewey's mustache. <laughs> the Republicans have been accused of overconfidence. I understand Dewey just placed an order with I.J. Fox for a mink mustache. And Earl Warren keeps going into Washington bars and yelling, Orange juice for everybody. <laughs> One night last week, they caught Earl Warren trying to squeeze a grapefruit on the Capitol Dome. <laughs> Los Angeles, California. The yearly convention of the American Congress of Surgeons met here this week to evaluate the progress of medical science during the past year. 7,500 doctors. That's a lot of camel cigarettes. <laughs> One of the surgeons met an old patient of his in the hotel lobby. It was a touching scene as the MD ran over, clapped the fellow on the back, and exclaimed, Well, well, long time no saw. <laughs> See, there were surgeons. <laughs> the bellhops aren't too enthusiastic about this convention. One of them carried a doctor's suitcase upstairs, held out his hand. And before he knew what had happened, he had his pulse taken, a mole removed, and donated three quarts of blood to the Red Cross. <laughs> a Swedish doctor caused a sensation at the convention by demonstrating a mechanical heart run by electricity. Can you imagine the future? A man with a mechanical heart getting a letter from the electric company that says, unless you pay your bill, we'll have to cut your heart off. <laughs> scientific instruments they have now are unbelievable. they got microscopes that are so powerful you can not only see the microbes, but you can actually hear them. I looked into it and there were five germs marching up and down and singing good health to all from Rexall. <laughs> and the druggists are all excited about a new remedy called Vuma Seltzer. It has a thousand times more fizz than Alka-Seltzer. You just put a tablet in a glass, pour water on it, then run outside and drink it as it comes out the window. <laughs> Hey, hi, what's this? Somebody parking their car right in the studio? Oh, relax, Bob. This isn't a real car. It was just a sound effect to remind everybody about Lever Brothers' big new contest. Listen. Well, it sounds like an interesting contest. What do you do, mail in the top of a pedestrian? <laughs> <laughs> no, Bob, no. All you have to do is mail in a wrapper from a cake of swan, and you have a chance to win a new 1949 Mercury. And tonight, we have the first winners. To Mrs. Catherine Kelly of 2115 Freemansburg Avenue, Eaton, Pennsylvania. A new 1949 Mercury. To Miss Harriet D. Young of Lexington, Kentucky. A new 1949 Mercury. To Mrs. T.W. Lyons of Atlanta, Georgia. A new 1949 Mercury. To Cecil Earl Williams, Hospital Corps, United States Naval Air Station, Key West, Florida. A new 1949 Mercury. Congratulations, winners. And remember, folks, there's still plenty of time to enter. Lever Brothers is giving away a Mercury a day every day until November 19th. That's right, a Mercury a day plus $1,000 in cash awards daily. There's a new contest every day except Saturday and Sunday, and you can enter as often as you please. All residents of the continental United States, including Alaska and Hawaii, are eligible. Just be sure to follow the complete rules printed on free entry blanks at your store. Here's all you do. Finish the following statement, I like swan soap because in 25 words or less. Then send a swan soap wrapper together with your name and address to Lever's Mercury A Day Contest, Post Office Box 3, New York 8, New York. Well, I swan. A Mercury A Day. Gee whiz, that's right. By Cracky. Yeah. <laughs> Here's
was a beautiful Doris Day and the four hits of the mist with their treatment of hair of gold. Doris tried to send it. He came down from Butte, Montana for a little change of scene. And he stopped to stay in Santa Fe where he met a pretty queen. Oh, hair of gold, eyes of blue, lips like cherry wine. The prettiest gal he ever knew and he said, I'll make her mine. job on that song, Doris. You know, I was thinking about those musicals you make over Warner Brothers. It's too bad they haven't got a good-looking fella to sing with you. But, Bob, I just finished the picture with Dennis Morgan. Dennis Morgan? You mean Jack Carson's mother? <laughs> the kind of a fella you need in those pictures should be handsome and magnetic, and he should have a voice somewhere in between Perry Como and Andy Russell. Oh, I know, Bob, but a fellow as perfect as that is too much to hope for. Well, that's what my parents thought, but it happened. <laughs> You mean? Yes, I have so much more than Gregory. Why should I fight it? Oh, Bob. Bob, hmm? I would love to be in a picture with you. Oh, and that reminds me. My dramatic coach, Miss Ryan, wants me to thank you for taking her on that tour through Paramount Studios. Well, I was glad to do it, Doris. And it was easy to arrange because I'm the most important actor over the, you know. Well, now, that's very odd. They told Miss Ryan that the most important actor was Alan Ladd. Paramount said that? Yes. Well, I'll get even with them. Just wait till the next time they want me to Simonize Sabu's elephant. <laughs> Come on, Bob. You know you love working over at Paramount. Oh, I don't know. Pictures are all right, but they're so make-believe. It's a shame the way they fool the public. How? Well, for instance, everybody thinks Gary Cooper's a tall man. That's because they always give him something to stand on before they shoot a scene. Well, he certainly does look tall in pictures. What does he stand on? Crosby. <laughs> And that's quite a lump, you know. <laughs> Humphrey Bogart. There's another fake. Humphrey Bogart? Yeah, you know what a rough mug he's supposed to be? You see him in a picture and he says, stick him up in your hands, you rat, or I'll drill you. I'm the toughest guy in town. Well, isn't he tough? Doris, 
Loren Bacall told me that when he comes home at night, she has to rub him with alcohol before he can mash the potatoes. Bob, Bob, you're making this whole thing up. I am not. Wait till I tell you about Charles Boyer. Now, there's nothing wrong with Charles Boyer. Oh, no. You know how he got his lower lip to hang down like that, don't you? When he goes to bed at night, he buttons it to his pajamas. <laughs> Yeah, now, for heaven's sakes, Doris, don't ask her about her ailments or we'll be here all night. Okay. Hello, everybody. Well, I'm improving. Ah. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> Yesterday, I felt lousy. But today, I had a good day. Mm-hmm. I just feel kind of rotten. <laughs> What's the matter, Miss Ryan? Well, I haven't been able to sleep for the last three nights. It's so cold here in California in the evening. But I thought you bought an electric blanket. Yes, but those things are kind of tricky. When I first got it, I turned the heat up too high, and all night long I kept dreaming I was a Friday. <laughs> well, didn't you roll over? Why didn't you roll over? Oh, I couldn't. I always sleep sunny side up. <laughs> I'm cheerful. When I get up in the morning, I smile through my agony and I say, I just hope I live through this day. And do you? You know, uh... You know, Doris was telling me... Sometimes I wonder whatever happened to my vitality. Oh, it must be crawling around someplace. <laughs> Doris was saying... Just... Oh, I'm serious, really. I used to be a real live wire. Well, those fuses don't last forever, you know. Miss Ryan, I was telling Bob how much you enjoyed your tour through Paramount. Oh, yes, Mr. Hope. And I know it sounds kind of silly, but I sort of fell in love with one of those young, good-looking leading men over there. Ray Milan? No. <laughs> Barry Fitzgerald. <laughs> He's got such pretty blue eyes. Every time he looked at me, I could feel the corners curl on my mustard plaster. <laughs> Did you get acquainted with Barry Fitzgerald? Well, I tried to. I wanted him to know that I'd seen him in pictures. So I walked up and said, going my way. And he said, yes, eventually, but I have to take two more harp lessons. Well, the next time I see Barry, I'll put in a good word for you. Oh, thank you, Mr. Hope, but... Say, do you think that he'd like me any better if I dressed real girlish? You know, with a peasant blouse or a sweater? Miss Ryan, aren't you trying to flag down the super chief with a burnt match? <laughs> well, so long, everybody. Tonight, the Medical Association is putting on a radio quiz program. I want to be there because they're giving away a free autopsy. <laughs> Goodbye. Yes, sir. There she goes. She'll probably spend Halloween bobbing for aspirin. <laughs> By the way, Doris, what are you doing Halloween? Well, I have a date with High Everman. 
Hey, look, here he comes now, and he's wearing a yachting cap. Ahoy there, you landlubbers. Lower your gang plank. I'm coming alongside. Well, if it isn't the Moby Dick of the kitchen sink. <laughs> hey, you look like you've been out sailing, high. Well, a man like me can't resist the call of the open sea. I spent the weekend at Malibu. I love those trade winds blowing through my hair and the refreshing salt spray on my face. Do you have your own yacht at Malibu? No, he's receptionist down there on a live bait barge. <laughs> He gets $12 a week and all the fish heads he can smuggle out in his pants cuffs. Oh, gee, hi. It must take a lot of courage to go out in the ocean. Well, you see, Dora, sailing is in my blood. My great-grandfather was a sea dog. My grandfather was a sea dog. My father was an old sea dog. And then came me. Well, the luck couldn't hold out forever. <laughs> a water spaniel had to get in there someplace. Don't pay any attention to him, hi. Say, tell me about some of your seagoing ancestors. Well, Doris, my great-great-grandfather was a famous old pirate. Honestly? Yes, old cutthroat Averback. Why, they still talk about the time Captain Kidd and his bloodthirsty crew attacked my great-great-grandfather and boarded his ship. Well, box my compass. <laughs> there was Captain Kidd and my great-great-grandfather. <laughs> yes, sir. There they it, were, Doris. It was there, and I delivered it. <laughs> okay, take it, Captain. Like I've been saying, saying Captain right, Kidd and my great-great-grandfather were there in a hand-to-hand saber duel. Finally, finally, Captain Aberback dropped his weapon, and he was at Captain Kidd's mercy. He had to show him where the treasure chest was. No. The pirates opened it. They threw the diamonds and rubies into the sea. Uh-huh. And then at the bottom of the chest, they found what they were looking for. What? What? A cake of swan soap. <laughs> He had to go around Cape Horn to get it, but there it is. Yes, Swan is that new, better floating soap. Made by a modern, patented process no other soap can use. It's better for dishes because Swan gives faster, harder-working suds. Suds that rinse away so completely, dishes don't need wiping. And as Captain Aberback was struggling there in the water, whipping up those rich, creamy suds, suddenly, from out of the mist, there appeared a life raft with two men on it. What were the Lever brothers doing out there? Captain Averback's rescuers reached out and pulled him onto the raft by his soft white hand. Soft because he used swan. Naturally, swan is better for hand. Mild as the finest castiles, with richer suds that protect your hand. Yes, swan's exclusive process makes it better for dishes and hands. For baby, for bath, for you. So break swan. See how you get two smooth cakes that are never rough or crumbly. It's another way to prove Swan is a better white floating soap. Well, shiver my soap dish, I Swan. Me too. Yes, sir. That's right. Bye, Cracky. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight our guest stars are those sensational young comics, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. But there's a story connected with how they get on our show. The other night, I went over to Slapsy Maxie to see Martin and Lewis about coming on the show. And as I walked into the club, they were in the middle of the rack. Dean Martin was singing. Everybody loves somebody sometimes. Everybody falls in love somehow. Something in your kiss just told me. Sometimes is now. Everybody finds somebody someplace. 
Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that about winds up our show, and uh, I'm pretty sure my partner, Darius Lewis, would like to say a few things, huh? I'm, I'm, I'm awfully glad you called on me, and because you let me be out of here with you like this, I appreciate it. You what? I said by you calling me like this, I appreciate it. Why do you keep the words up in the air? Let it come down. There's a period there. You, you would say, I'm going to the corner, not, I'm going to the corner. Oh, you talk your way. I talk that way because, listen... <laughs> Stop being foolish and say good night to the people. In a nice way, huh? Yes. You folks have been very nice to us, and I would like to say that we appreciate the way you received our work, and I'd like to say, as far as an audience is concerned, you folks have really been without a doubt. <laughs> Boy, it's really a relief to be back here in the dressing room. Yeah, I'm beat. We really worked hard tonight, didn't we, Jerry? With that audience, we had to. What was it with those people? We're doing our act and they're reading. They just sit there reading and eating and eating. You know, Dean, it made me stop and think. What about? I'm hungry. Uh, listen, Jerry, did you see that guy sitting in the front row with that big funny nose? That's a nose. Yes, uh, that was his nose. <laughs> his date. No wonder she had two holes in her head. Yeah, that nose was a real brute. Did you see the waiter come over and ask the nose if it was ready to order dinner? <laughs> I wonder who the schmo is. Did you get a load of that, that funny outfit he was wearing? Top hat, white tie, and bare feet? Yeah, and he really was tipping. He was throwing bars of soap around like a drunken laundryman. <laughs> but you know something, Jerry? There was something familiar about that guy. I've seen him before. You have? Yeah, wait a minute. His name is uh, Bob... Uh, Bob, Bob... Uh... Bob Montgomery? No. Bob Taylor? No, but you're getting warm. Bob Rustanwick? No. <laughs> Bob uh, Lou? Jerry. Bob Lou, I like Bob Lou, I like Bob Lou, Jerry Lewis. That's who it is, Jerry Lewis. No. How could it be me? How could I be on a stage and in the audience at the same time? Oh, Jerry, please. I remember now. Mm. It was a hot summer day in New York. I had just come out of the doctor's office. The doctor had just told me the news. I had only 70 years to live. <laughs> I had to cram a whole lifetime into only 70 years. I thought of all the wonderful things I wanted to do. Paris, Rome, London. Get a haircut. <laughs> Easy. Your head's coming loose again. Jerry. I just remembered who that guy in the front is. Hey, there's somebody knocking on the door. Oh, there's a clever deduction. <laughs> will you please go to the door, Jerry? Okay, I will. Promise to write me while I'm gone? Yes, every day. Well, that'll be sterling. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Who's there, boy or girl? Bob Hope. Answer the question. <laughs> Well? <laughs> Hi, I'm Bob Hope, and I, uh... Beat it, kid. No autographs. <laughs> now, wait a minute, Jerry. Uh, come right in, Bob. Uh, I'm Dean Martin. This is my partner, Jerry Lewis. Jerry, Bob Hope. Bob Hope? Big deal. <laughs> you can't just barge in here, bud. We're not bums, you know. Didn't you see the sign on our dressing room door? Sure, it said gentlemen. Gentlemen. <laughs> 
we insisted on that. We like a lot of war spaces. <laughs> well, you... <laughs> you know, I just caught your act, fellas, and I thought you were great. Say, Dean, you know when you sing, you sound just like Crosby? Well, I've been sick. <laughs> better than that with both that noise time behind my back. Please, boy, who'd you ever sing with? Who'd I ever sing with? Are you for real? <laughs> He's asking me. <laughs> go ahead, quick frozen. Read, go ahead. <laughs> Tell me, who'd you ever sing with? Well, Kate Smith, just to name a few. <laughs> Just get a load of some of this thing, will you, hey? Rising well, the moon, high up on the midnight blue. Sounds like this kid was frightened by the Andrews sisters. <laughs> One at a time. Hey, what kind of crack is that to make? What are you, a wise guy or something? I'd punch you right in the nose if I wasn't afraid your nose would punch me back. <laughs> Look, don't take it out on me, Pumpkinhead, just because your hair got singed when they put the candle in. <laughs> now, look, fellas, as I was saying, I thought your act was really fine. I was wondering if you'd like to do a guest appearance on my show. What do we need with radio? We have everything two good-looking young American boys could ask for. Lights, music, caviar, champagne, sen-sen. I love life, and I want to live. Hey, Dean, light me another cigarette. I swallowed the last one. <laughs> you know... Jerry's got a point there, Bob. We're doing pretty well in nightclubs, and besides, we're a little bit afraid of radio. Oh, there's no reason to be afraid of radio. Look at Al Jolson. He'd never have his own radio program today. He'd still be working in a nightclub if he hadn't taken the advices of his friend Abe. Abe Lassfogel? No, Abe Lincoln. Fellas, I tell you, <laughs> I tell you, you can't miss on the air. Well, I'm sold, Bob. How about you, Jerry? No, I will not go on the air. And if you try to force me, I'll throw myself down on the ground and kick. And if you want to go on the radio, you can go on by yourself, Dean Martin. All right for you, so there, too. <laughs> Oh, what's the matter with you, Jerry? Everything I say to you goes in one hole in your head and out the other. Look, Jerry, why don't you forget about being a comedian? Get married and have a few kids. Don't wait until it's too late like your father did. <laughs> Say, Dean, why don't we go off by ourselves where we can P-A-L-K without the K-I-D? Well, he's pretty hard to L-O-S-E, but we can P-R-Y. Hey, you guys, cut that out. I know what you're doing. What? You're spelling. <laughs> what you say. I'm not going on a radio. I hate the radio, and if you make me go on a radio, I'll swallow my skate key. Well, we pay our guest stars $5,000 for a guest shot, and if you guys work out, you can come back for five more shots. And I want mine with soda. <laughs> I put one over on him, didn't I? Wasn't that a fun... Ain't I the shifty one? All right, so it's all said, Jerry. We'll do the Hope Show. Yeah, we'll do the Hope Show. Oh, swell. Well, I'll see you Tuesday, then. Sure, why not? We'll send you the ticket. <laughs> Don't mind him, Bob. When uh, we were kids, we were playing Drax one day, and the car fell down on his head. Have you, have you guys got any material you can do on the radio? Well, we've got a song that we sang once before with a girl, but you could take her part. Oh, fine. Is it a good part? Is it a good part? Here's the music. Just come in every place that says Hildegard. 
I'm looking over a four-leaf clover that I overlooked before. One leaf is sunshine, the second is rain. Third is the roses that grow in the lane. No need explaining the one remaining is somebody I adore. I said I adore, I mean adore really means... This kid sounds like Jeanette McDonald with a half Nelson on Eddie. Did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he said, Dean? Hold me back. Hold me back. Why should I hold you back? It itches. I'm looking over a four-leaf clover that I overlooked before. There goes our hooper that I overlooked Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's The Lone Ranger, followed by Fred Allen. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.